Well, good morning, everybody. Our key scripture this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. So if you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to do that. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the, ble- the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind. Be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Some of you know my son uh, Zeke better than others of you do, but my son Zeke loves basketball. Loves basketball. It's his favorite thing. And so when we're at home, he uh, if he's ever on an iPad or an iPod or any of those things, he's always looking up uh, basketball scores and stats and all of these different things. And because he loves basketball, guess what else he likes? Basketball gear. I don't know where he gets this from, Zula. I don't know where he gets this from. But... He, uh, he loves basketball gear. So for his birthday, he wanted new basketball shoes. Uh, he wanted new basketball clothes. But more than anything else, he wanted basketball tights, which you wear under your shorts. And they go down to like your calf area. And he wanted a shooting sleeve, which is like a thing that you wear like from here to here and on both arms because, you know, it keeps your arm warm and you're able to stay hot longer, you know, because when daddy heats up, you got to stay hot, right? So he got all this stuff and the first thing he did was he opened the tights, he pulled them out and he was like, he held them up in front of him and he said, I got tights and I really wish I had been recording that moment so that when he's like 40, you'd be like, bro, this was you. Yeah, he's going to, I owe him something for telling that story. As we have seen through the story that we have been studying for all these many months now, the people of God have a secret weapon, an advantage that none of their enemies have. When they are in a healthy relationship with God, God himself then is on their side. No one could stand against them. Therefore, when their enemies would attack and they are surrounded by enemies at all times, if they were in this relationship with God, their enemies could not take them down. It didn't matter how bad things looked. It didn't matter how little hope they had. With God on their side, there was no one that could stand against them. 
The biggest problem, of course, that we have seen over and over again in the story was that the people of God didn't continue to be the people of God. They let this relationship with God break over and over again. They were under attack, not only from neighbors, but as Paul wrote here, they were also under attack from the one who wanted to drive a wedge between them and God. We know that from the beginning of the story, there is another enemy, the deceiver, whose goal is not necessarily to conquer the people as much as it is to cause separation between them and God because the moment the deceiver causes separation between God and his people, his people are so weak. We have marveled over and over again about how the people turn away from God when he was doing such good things from them. But there is a reason for this other than the fact that they were just faithless. You see, they were under attack and they did not guard their hearts and their minds against the attack of the enemy they could not see. Paul warned the church in Ephesus as he warns us now that we are still under attack. There is one who is looking to destroy us, scheming of new ways to prey on our weaknesses, whose goal is again to drive a wedge between us and God, because when we are separated from God, we are weak. So he prays on our weaknesses. Because if he can separate us from God, there is nothing that can stop him from claiming us. So Paul warns us to be aware. We need to be vigilant. We need to arm ourselves so that we can protect ourselves from these attacks. And if you think about the armor of God, the things that Paul listed there for us, put on the full armor of God, stand firm with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, your feet fitted with readiness. Take up the shield of faith and the the sword, the, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit and pray at all times. Think about what those things are for a moment. If you put those things on you, what are you essentially doing? You are clothing yourself with who? With God. You are clothing yourself with God. And if you clothe yourself with God, you will not be separated from Him no matter what attack comes. And if you are clothed with God and you stand firm, then no matter what enemy comes against you, God will prevail. Amen? In every epic story, there are elements that are in these epic poems and creations. One of them, uh, which you may be aware of or may not be aware of, is the arming of the hero. It happens in just about every epic story. And if you think about it now, you're probably realizing that it's in almost every superhero movie you've ever watched, any war movie you've ever watched, anything where someone is getting ready to fight. So you know what I'm talking about. There's that scene before they go and fight where they put on whatever their weapons are. Uh, How many of you have seen the movie Rocky? This scene is in the movie Rocky. Do you remember where it is? It's not when he puts his gloves on. It's the time that he's running up the stairs right before he faces Apollo Creed. Right? He is arming himself for what he needs. And you see the transformation in him so that when he finally comes and fights, he is ready for the fight that is ahead of him. So here's the thing. 
God gives us everything we need to defend ourselves so that we can stay connected to him. Truth, righteousness, readiness, faith, salvation. And on top of that, pray to God. And if you do those things, you will not fall. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Guess what? Today, we are finishing the Old Testament. That's, That's right. In 23 short weeks, we have made our way through the Old Testament. As, uh, as was mentioned, we're going to have a, a slight break after today from the story with some uh, really cool things happening. JD is going to speak next week. Uh, we're going to tell you about uh, the vision that we have for our church over about a four-week span. Praise in the Park is in there. And so once all those things are over, we'll come back to uh, the story. Um, so this is a chance for us to both finish what's happening in the story, but also to reflect on some of what we've seen happen all throughout uh, the story of God and his people. From the very beginning of the story, God, who is the hero of the story, he had one main goal. He wanted to be in relationship with his people. He created humanity unique and apart from everything else so that we could have relationship with him. He would be our God and we would be his people. He would provide for all of our needs and we would walk in unity and love with God in all things. God wanted closeness. He wanted this sort of relationship where he was known and we were known to him. But the first representatives of our kind were deceived into believing that they did not need God, that they did not need to listen to him. And in fact, if they just ate from this one piece of fruit, they could be like him and he could exit the picture altogether. And from the moment that that first bite was taken along with the second The relationship that God had so desired was fractured and it would never be the same again. And since that moment, what have we seen in the story? We've experienced so many ups and downs and back and forth. We've seen God's people triumph and we've seen them fall. They have been called out, captured, liberated, defeated, victorious, given up and restored. And we have seen all of these happen over and over and over again. They reached the highest of highs as a people and they steadily declined from there. The nation split. The north was just taken and scattered to the wind. The south held on for a while longer, but eventually they too were destroyed and taken from Jerusalem. Their city, the house of God, and it was brought to the ground. The temple of God plundered, completely torn down, the foundation of the very place destroyed, the walls ripped apart. And as we went through the story, it's not like we didn't see this coming. 
right? It's not like we didn't see this coming. Because if there are some things, maybe two things that we marvel at over and over again in the story, it might be these two things. How can a people who have such an amazing God on their side forget about Him so often? How can that happen? But then on the other side of this, there is something else that amazes us and should continue to amaze us throughout our entire lives is how does God love them anyway? It's a, it's a beautiful part of the story, isn't it? Because this story can so easily be a story of repeated failure. It could so easily be the story of how God got tired of all these shenanigans and wrote us all off the island. But it is not that story. And as remarkable as it is, it has never been that story. Though God has been hurt and injured and sad and upset and frustrated and angry, He has never let go of the people that he loves. God has never let go of the people that he loves, <laughs> no matter how boneheaded they are. And we find ourselves now at the end of the story, which, you know, it's kind of nice where we've been the last few weeks because we're finally seeing some good things happen in multiple stories, right? It is refreshing to experience that. And here's something that we have seen. Though all of God's people are taken away into captivity, and though they are bound by this king who knows nothing about them, though they don't even really matter, God has done miraculous things to show himself as the God of these fractured people even in the midst of this place that does not know him or want to know him. And this thing, this thing still just blows my mind every time I think about it. God, in the story, has used three Persian kings in a row to bring about his will for his people. He used Persian kings to send them back. He used Persian kings to give them everything that they needed. And whenever they were threatened, the Persian king would step in He's the biggest, baddest dude on the block. And on behalf of God, would protect God's people. That is remarkable. It is absolutely remarkable that this is what has happened. And even better, we are seeing God's people start to come out of the fog and the haze. Daniel, who stood up for God, who knew God, who understood God. Esther, who did the same thing, stood up for God. We've just seen these things, and it has encouraged me as we're coming to the end of this part of the story, that maybe it's possible for God's people to have something better with Him than what they have had. But the question that comes to mind as we come to the end of this part is, 
Well, what does that take? What does it take for the people of God to have a better thing with God than they've had? What things do they need to learn or do or correct or learn from? There is still more to be done. And today's story starts with the letter. From Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra, the priest, teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Greetings. Now I declare that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who volunteer to go to Jerusalem with you may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the freewill offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs together with their grain offering and drink offerings and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. I want to pause for a second because you need to appreciate what's happening here. This is the fourth Persian king who sends them back and gives them everything they need. And beyond that, tells them they are supposed to have all this stuff so they can do what? They can worship God. Now, is Artaxerxes a believer in God? Yes and no. He does not follow God. He does not sacrifice to God. But he believes in God. He does. Because guess what Artaxerxes doesn't want? This God of these people to get mad at him. So, in some sort of backhanded way, he recognizes this God is real, even though he doesn't follow this God. So he sends them back for more. You and your fellow Israelites may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of God and anything else needed for the temple of your God that you are responsible to supply, you may provide from the royal treasury. Now I, Artaxerxes, decree that all the treasures of trans-Euphrates are to provide, treasurers of trans-Euphrates, are to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the peace, priest, the teacher of the law, the God of heaven, may ask of you. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil, and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven." Why should his wrath fall on the realm of the king and of his sons? You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute, or duty on any of the priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, temple servants, or any workers in this house of God. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of trans-Euphrates. To all the people of trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them, 
Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. Okay. So, they're sent back with everything they need. They're to take whatever they don't have from either the people around them or from the royal treasury. And then when they get there, who's in charge? Ezra is. Over who? Everybody. Think about that for a second. Over everybody. Is it just the people that are in Jerusalem? No, he says the whole trans-Euphrates area. You are to instruct them as to the law so that they follow the law of your God. He's basically giving them a mandate that, they, that God's law will be the law of this entire area. Now that's wacky. But this is what the king says. So, Ezra brought back the second group of Israelites under the blessing of the Persian king in 458 BC. So let's, you might be confused a little bit, I know I was, as to when things were happening. Okay, so let me give you just a quick timeline. In 538 BC, that was when the first group came back under Zerubbabel. And in 516, about 20 years later, the temple was completed. After that, in 478, that's where Esther became queen under King Xerxes, and she saved the annihilation of her people. And now we are at 458, because it counts backwards, right, coming, um, which is when this second group returns with Ezra. So, it's been a while since the first group left. So what is happening is you have a group that is living there in Jerusalem, okay, and they have restored the temple, they're worshiping God, but you have a whole another group of people who are still living in Babylon, and they've been living in Babylon for like an entire another generation of people. Because uh, it's been, what is it? Yeah, 96 years, roughly, or 86 years. So, the Israelites go with Ezra, and they had just returned from Babylonian captivity, and they were not in very good shape when they got to Jerusalem. So the people that were coming were not in great shape. The people that were there were not in great shape. And there were a couple of reasons. Number one, um, this group had been living in Babylon for a long time and generations. So their lives were Babylonian lives. And um, in this particular group, there were many men who had actually, when they were in Babylon, found an exotic Babylon woman and divorced their Hebrew wife and married a Babylonian woman. And this had happened sort of all over the place. And as that happened, they steadily lost their identity and culture. So here's what happened. Ezra gets there. He gets everybody together. And uh, the people that are, that are there in Jerusalem, they're struggling too. There's a lot of different things going on. So he gets everybody together and he simply reads the word of God to the people. And by reading the word of God to the people, they heard it. Ezra would read for days at a time. If you think this is bad, it was worse then. He would read for days at a time and he helps people realize that they had to turn back to God in every way of their life. So if someone had married outside or divorced their Hebrew wife, they then divorced their foreign wife and came back to their Hebrew wife. It was possible. But there was still um, a problem, even though the people were coming back to God now and Ezra's there to lead them and worship, the temple is restored, there's still a big problem that they have, and that is the walls of the city are still broken down. They were broken down in 586 B.C. when King Nebuchadnezzar came through and took care of that. 
Um, he breached them and burned the temple and carried away all those things. So the walls were torn down completely in some spots. There were holes and the gates were broken and burned. And so the whole thing was in disrepair. Consequently, because the whole thing was in disrepair, the Jews um, couldn't defend themselves if someone wanted to come and attack them. Um, the returned exiles had attempted to rebuild the walls in or shortly after 458 BC, but that problem, that uh, building project kind of stopped because there were just too many people. Do you remember back when they were building the temple and they started to lay these foundations and do these things, the, the people who ran the trans-Euphrates area, what was their response? Well, first they asked if they could help, right? And the leader said, no. Zerubbabel said, no. And then they got angry and they tried to keep them from doing it and they tried to send a letter remember and then the letter reminded everyone about this so they they are still surrounded by people that don't like them they don't like them for a lot of reasons there's a lot of reasons why number one xerxes has given them control over all of them which they don't like and they're rebuilding this city and building up the walls which means they can actually take over the area so they couldn't defend themselves. The walls were still down. People were coming in. Even with God on their side, there were holes in what they could do. About 13 years later, after the Israelites come back with Ezra, there is a young man who was living in Babylon that had sent, uh, whose brothers came back and some friends, and he asked them what it was like in Jerusalem, and he got a bug that there was something that had to be done. So this guy's name was Nehemiah. And if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open up to Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. <clears throat> We're going to be sort of circling around there, but this comes from Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant they had sur that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord... God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Re remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Side note. 
I was cupbearer to the king. So, not everyone has gone back. And Nehemiah is still there. And he was a high official in the Persian court who, out of concern for Jerusalem, was going to go to the king and ask if we, they could rebuild the wall and have the things that they need to rebuild the wall. So he asked for that permission. He was given the permission to serve as governor of Judah, that district. And so he served in Jerusalem 12 years, returned to Persia, and then went to Judah a second time to govern there. Um, I know he said he's a cupbearer, but he was an important person within the Persian court. Um, extra biblical references um, that mention the office of cupbearer in the Persian court have revealed that this was a position second only in authority to the king. Nehemiah was not only the chief treasurer and keeper of the king's signet ring, but he also tasted the king's food to make sure no one had poisoned it. So he had a lot of jobs, but he was super important to them. Uh, the cupbearer in later times was to exercise even more influence than the commander-in-chief. From varied sources, it may be assumed that Nehemiah, as a royal cupbearer, would probably have the following uh, traits. Number one, he would have been well-trained in court etiquette. Number two, he was probably a handsome individual. I'm not sure why we could assume that, but apparently we can. Uh, number three, he would certainly know how to select the wines to set before the king. Number four, he would have to be a convivial companion to the king with a willingness, willingness to lend an ear at all times. Number five, he would be a man of great influence as one of the closest with access to the king and one who could well determine who could see the king. Above all, Nehemiah had to be an individual who enjoyed the unreserved confidence of the king. Basically what it means is that he and the king were BFFs. And almost everything was run through him. So he was an important dude. And he had a great job and a lot of power and influence, but he hears about what's happening with his people, and this is important for us to understand. What happens to him when he hears about the walls of Jerusalem being broken down? What happens to him? He, no, he's more than sad. He is broken down himself. He is weeping and crying and mourning for what his people once had and what they don't have. Secondly, what does he do? He believes that he must do something about this. And so he goes to the king and asks the king, and the king granted him the request. Nehemiah was convinced that he needed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls that surround the city, and Artaxerxes said he could do it. So the king sent Nehemiah and went as far as to give him letters to other governors in the area so that Nehemiah could have safe passage and again get all the materials he needed once he arrived in Jerusalem. Now, building, rebuilding the temple was a big job. Right? It took, it took a long time. Um, rebuilding the wall was an even bigger job because it surrounded the entire city of Jerusalem. So when Nehemiah got there, he got to Jerusalem and he spent a few days there and he went out to walk around and look at the walls to see what it looked like, to see how much work had to be done. Um, and he found that the situation was as, bad, was as bad as he heard. And Nehemiah says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. 
They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this work. So he goes out there. He tells them he's been sent by the king. He tells them they've been sent by God. And they all decide to rebuild the wall. So he starts rebuilding the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And he got everyone to help. And um, now one man's mission had become a national service project where everyone was coming together to work on this same thing. They were all pitching in and rebuilding the walls and the gates. So the other people that are living around them and that see them building the walls and the gates, what do they think? This is dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Remember what Wayne said earlier? Right? If there are holes in the gates and there's holes all over the place, what can the enemy do? It can get in. The enemy can get in. But if they rebuild the walls to these big, huge walls that surround the city, what can the enemy not do? And all of a sudden, these people that they've been able to pick on for so long won't be able to get in and take control. And so they don't really like what's going on. So they plan to attack the city and take out anyone who is working on the walls just to put them in their place. Let's strike while the holes are still there. Let's get in there and keep them from doing this. And one of the guys who was kind of the ringleader of this was a man named Sanballat. And when he heard that we were, Nehemiah says, and by the way, Nehemiah writes in first person the whole time. I, we. So this is what he says. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the armies of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. So they're looking down on Judah pretty well. And they know that we've still got these people. So Nehemiah gets word that this is happening. And so he organized watchmen to keep watch over the workers and make sure that they stayed safe. This is what he says. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were, who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. So even though there was severe opposition, Nehemiah didn't become discouraged. He faced it head on with the conviction that he was doing what God wanted him to do and knowing that this was something important for them to do. So he armed them. He got them ready so that they would stand against whatever enemies would come. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Oh no. <laughs> but they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, 
It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are rebuilding the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king, so come, let us meet together. What a dirty dog. Right? He can't just get in there now. Nehemiah won't go meet him. And so what does he do? He fabricates a story that he believes if this story gets back to Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes will tear them down. I sent him this reply. Uh, Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed... Now strengthen my hands. From this vision that Nehemiah had of rebuilding the wall and restoring the city, people began to be drawn back into relationship with God. As I said, he was appointed governor over the land by Artaxerxes, who already knew what they were doing. And he made it his personal mission to restore not just the walls, but the hearts of the people to God. So he called on Ezra to come back and to educate the people. And all, it took 52 days of constant work to rebuild the wall around the city. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Although the city walls had been rebuilt, hardly anyone lived in it, and none of the houses had been rebuilt. So families came from all different tribes and towns to try to rebuild a way of life in Jerusalem because now it was safe to live there. And when the people came home, Ezra, a scribe and priest, read from the law all day, and people sat and listened all day to the word of God. And in so doing, the people discovered that they had not been doing what God wanted them to do. They rediscovered things like the Sabbath, which they had totally forgotten about and didn't even know they were supposed to follow. And all of the festivals that they were supposed to follow as the people of God. For eight days, Ezra read from the law and the people rediscovered who they were. And on the 24th day of that month, the nation of Israel, as a whole, within the city of Jerusalem, came forward in sackcloth and ashes and humbled themselves before God, and praised Him, and rededicated themselves to Him. The whole city, the whole nation, humbled themselves before God. So what do we learn from Nehemiah? There's a few things I want to point out here. Number one, this movement started in Nehemiah's heart, and not his head. He did not wake up one morning and decide he wanted to rebuild Jerusalem and reestablish the Israelite people, but rather his heart was moved because he realized how far the people were from God. He wept and cried and he experienced an unrest in his soul. And he recognized how he was part of the problem. He didn't turn a blind eye to what had taken place, but he acknowledged all the baggage before God. He asked God first, to restore the people and to give him success in going to see the king. But Nehemiah understood something that Paul understood in the letter to Ephesians. 
He's not just fighting the people of the trans-Euphrates area. Who else is he fighting? The forces that would stand against his God. And so, what does Nehemiah do? I challenge you to go back and read the book of Nehemiah from beginning to end. And here's what you'll find. Nehemiah prays all the time. Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I wear this cloak? He prays all the time. In fact, 11% of the book of Nehemiah are written prayers. 11% are written prayers, things that he offered up. And it's what he did before he did anything. God, bless this. Be here in this. Help me know what to do. Show me your way. And when he did those things, he was arming himself with God, he was putting God on in all that he did. And because he was putting God on, he did something that we don't appreciate. He took a people who were still not a fully formed people and helped them to build an entire wall They're with few craftsmen under attack all the time, trying to be undermined by every around, everyone around them. They built a wall that protected the entire city. In only 52 days. He could not have done this if God was not on his side. And the story that he tells, tells us that everyone around knew it. This is what God did for them. But they wouldn't have known any of that if Nehemiah had not clothed himself with God if he had not put on this armor to fight this battle against people outside, against people inside, to reform their hearts, to bring them back to God, and to restore them to a place where they can be a people again. Church, it has been generations since they have been a people. Generations since they have had a place to live and thrive and worship their God. I wonder what would have happened if Nehemiah didn't get that report. Because there's one thing that we know is true from the story, besides the other things, one things that we know are true, is that God is looking for what? Someone who will hear, someone who will listen, and someone who will follow. Right? Someone who will hear, someone who will listen, who will follow. Because if someone can hear God's voice at all and then listens to the things that God is saying to them and then follows wherever God is taking them, then great things happen. Great things happen. Every time, great things happen. And God has done some of his best work not through a multitude, but through one or two who knew he was speaking to them in the first place, who understood what he was saying and who agreed to go boldly before him and to do his work. And so we find ourselves at the end of this story, the people who were called out, the people who were destroyed, the people who were refugees in another area, who had lost God now, 
they are back home. And they have dedicated themselves to God. They are following Him with all their hearts. And they finally get to rebuild this place. Who did this? It was God who moved the hearts of foreign kings, who gave them again everything they needed. And it all happened because one person heard and listened and followed. It's hard to be as bold as Nehemiah was. But he had confidence in God and he dressed himself with God. So I want to encourage us as we are going to be sharing with you in a couple of weeks what our vision is as we start thinking about what we are going to build and create. That nothing we do will be successful if we do not pray to our God and ask Him to give us purpose and meaning and direction. That we may hear His voice and understand what He's saying to us and that He will then give us the boldness to follow wherever it is He wants us to go. Because what we are building in this place is not from the work of our hands. It is from the work of God on our hearts, turning us, changing us, making us into something. May we be a community that is formed by the very words of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the boldness of Nehemiah. We thank you for the way you did impossible things. The hearts that you changed. The hearts of your people that was changed and brought back to you through the reading of your word. God, we want to be that kind of restoration community. A place where we are being called back to you a place where we are building what you call us to build, a place where we are humbling ourselves before you. So God, may we lift everything into your hands and may we hear your voice, listen to what you're saying, and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning or you want to know this God who loves you in such an amazing way, We invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.